This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to I recap uh, first very, very quickly some of the things we've been talking about the last couple of days um, uh, and uh, talk about the rise of, well, the, the state of the, of the built environment, talk about contemporary reform movements uh, and the obstacle uh, obstacle to good urbanism uh, that existing law proposes, and then talk about law, uh, natural law principles of um, of human habitation, or suggest a, a natural law principle of human habitation, uh, and then uh, talk about what uh, positive law implications might might follow um, from that. So, um, so very quickly, some slides that we've seen. Uh, character, a, good a good town in a neighborhood, I just, I'm going to run through about six or seven slides, uh, has a discernible center. Uh, it reserves prominent sites for religious and civic buildings. Uh, it's pedestrian friendly on its commercial streets. And I want to say, um, make the point that this is good contemporary American traditional towns. These are, I call them a little later, grandchildren of, of Aristotle, uh, of, of the polis. But, um, so uh, pedestrian friendly on its commercial streets pedestrian friendly on its residential streets, uh, a variety of dwelling types, um, single family houses, uh, attached single family houses, um, two, and three, two and three flat buildings, um, six flat apartment buildings, 12 flat apartment buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it has stores and offices located at uh, or near its center, um, uh, elementary schools, parks, and playgrounds to which children uh, who live in the neighborhood can walk. Um, uh, it has small blocks, small lots, and a network of through streets. Places its buildings near the front of their lots to give spatial definition to the streets. And the condition, of course, is spatial, as we talked about yesterday. Uh, utilizes its streets for parking and parks from alleys um, where possible uh, in service to that good of using the streets for parking. Now, as I say, I regard these images, uh, the, the, the kinds of images that I just showed you, as being sort of the great-grandchildren of Aristotle's polis, uh, with intimations of the city of God, uh, implicitly by the presence within these uh, built environments of beauty uh, and uh, just communities, uh, more explicitly in its physical uh, uh, acknowledgement where it exists, its, its physical acknowledgement of sacred order, most explicitly in acknowledging uh, the triune God and uh, incarnation uh, in, in its buildings and the organization of public space. So um, this is a set of slides that I wanted to show you there, that, well, I thought about showing you last time, but didn't. But it has to do with the uh, origins of, uh, really the origins of, of modernity and the changes uh, in, the, in the built environment that led uh, to suburban sprawl, right? Sort of the transition from the pre-industrial the, the pre revolution city to the 1950 advent of suburbia. And there was one group that I wanted to show you that I didn't, that I'm going to show you now, which is um, the, the development of streetcar, um, uh, streetcar suburbs, and actually just urban streetcars. But anyway, the, um, there's a whole set of uh, uh, oh, social movements uh, that, uh, that I discuss in classes that I teach on this subject that uh, um, I call them... Um, uh, the industrial, I call, I call the series the Industrial Revolution and its progeny, uh, and talk about the rise, you know, the rise of industrial civilization and its effect upon cities, um, and, and 
the series of reform movements that followed from that. Uh, and I think it's important. This is a 200-year process of reform movements that we are still in the middle of, um, so that uh, rural cemetery, health and hygiene laws in cities, rural cemeteries that led to the big parks movement in the 19th century, uh, the effects of world's fairs uh, on, uh, on urban design in the United States, the rise of modernism, uh, the rise of suburbia, uh, the rise of new urbanism, all of these things are reform movements uh, that have been engendered by the Industrial Revolution. Um, and, and of course, what the, the effect of the Industrial Revolution on the traditional city, a couple of things. One was that it, uh, it, it shifted the idea of where human flourishing takes place from the city to the wilderness, to the landscape, right? That prior to the Industrial Revolution, cities were the locus of human flourishing and the landscape was dangerous, right? You, you, you built walls around the city to protect yourself from, uh, you know, from predators, from uh, uh, brigands uh, and thieves, and, and, uh, and the city was where you could make your own laws and, and you could you know, uh, dwell in, in safety and security. And, and as we've discussed, there's a, necessarily, a necessary relationship to an agricultural landscape uh, in, in most cities. But uh, nevertheless, the city was seen as a place of flourishing. And after the Industrial Revolution, the city became a place of danger and disease. And so this was prompted by you know, the effects of, of industrial civilization leading to the overcrowding of cities, to health and sanitation concerns. Uh, there was also a, there was a corresponding increase in individual wealth uh, and amenities. There were obvious political changes um, that took place. I mean, again, you can't understand um, the 19th century and, and, and the history of the 20th century uh, political, political movements without uh, understanding it as a response to the rise of industrial um, civilization. And then the advent of new building materials and technology, all of these things um, uh, were part of uh, modernity that led ultimately to uh, the kind of ideology of modernity that we call modernism. Um, so I want to talk about streetcar suburbs uh, just very quickly um, because this was one of those things that uh, was adopted both in cities uh, and, uh, well, both in large cities and in medium-sized cities. Uh, and, uh, and there was a kind of a progression in, in, in how it developed. And I just want to show a little bit, uh, uh, some images just to give you a little flavor of that. Uh, so these were three different you know, kinds of streetcars. It really started with the horse-drawn uh, streetcar, uh, but really you had, you had the horse-drawn horse streetcar in the 1820s, the cable car uh, uh, and streetcar developed in, in 1887. And what, they could move, move people about four times faster than walking. But anyway, so the way that th this would typically happen is the streetcar line would be laid down out in the, out in the landscape, and then there would be um, some development on either side um, within walking distance of the streetcar stops, um, so it tended to be linear in form. It was the typical pattern of uh, American pattern of urban development uh, from about 1880 to 1945, which is you know, also pretty much that period of the American City Beautiful movement when there were no bad buildings built. Uh, it's, it's really remar remarkable. I mean, if you go to any city today and just look around at the best buildings, the ones that are the nicest scale, the best materials, the most durable, the, the most ornate, and they were almost certainly built between 1880 and, and 1945. Um, also, the, 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 the street network of, of streets and blocks, the mature trees, the, you know, all of this good walkable mixed-use neighborhood stuff, that's, that's I mean, it was, it was built the best that Americans have built it. It was, was built between 1880 and 1945. Um, anyway, it was a speculative development model. So this is, you can see the image um, on the right, you know, of, of, so they're laying the tracks out in the forest. 
um, then you know you get you get the development along the tracks that typically um, start up as wood frame buildings, and then as the wealth increases, um, you, you tend to get more durable buildings um, that are built um, built along the edge of the streetcar. And uh, there's about a half mile distance between streetcar lines. It's that half mile, ten minute walk thing. So you're never more than five minute walk from from public transportation and other uh, commercial amenities along the main street. So this is just an example. So so like. Um, um, Examples of streetcar suburbs uh, in their heyday, you know, probably 1950. I mean, major cities with 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 um, uh, you know significant street, uh, an extensive streetcar system. Toronto, Vancouver, Dayton, Minneapolis, Seattle, Los Angeles. Um, yes, Los Angeles. Um, and um, and this is a this is a diagram, uh, or actually, it's a, it's a map of the streetcar system of Toronto in 1915, just by way of example. So, um, you know, this development of, uh, you know, the, the streetcar suburbs came to an end with the uh, advent and rise of, of uh, the, the large automobile makers um, uh, who uh, bought up the streetcar systems, ripped out the, ripped out the, uh, the streetcar systems so that, so that uh, to create a market uh, for automobiles. This is actually the story of who framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, those of you who think it's just a cartoon show, uh, it's really uh, the... Uh, uh, it turns out that the mad cartoon guy was the was the one who was trying to create a, uh, an automobile uh, environment in which people could drive in a car and go buy rapidly prepared food. Um, so anyway, good movie. And one of the great lines in the movie, how many of you have seen it? Anybody? My, one of my favorite movie lines anywhere is Bob Hoskins says to Jessica Rabbit, what does a dame like you see in a guy like that? And the answer, he makes me laugh. You got it. And Roger Rabbit was a goofy cartoon. Jessica Rabbit was a different kind of cartoon. <laughs> um, okay, so one of the things that happened uh, in that time period, right, of the automobile—I'm uh, sorry, of the streetcar suburb—was um, a really critical uh, Supreme Court case in uh, in 1926. Uh, which was the village of Euclid versus Ambler Realty Company. And I'm not enough, I don't even know which party was, you know, who the plaintiff was and who the defendant was. But it was a landmark case. I haven't looked at it in a while, but I have looked at it. It was a landmark case uh, regarding the then relatively new practice of use-based zoning, uh, functional zoning, uh, zoning, uh, zoning land uh, for development according, uh, uh, strictly according to different uses. It has come to be known as Euclidean zoning. And most people who don't know about this lawsuit presume that Euclidean zoning refers to some kind of rational geometric process of, of laying out land. Not at all. It comes from this case in Euclid, Ohio, uh, where the, the courts ruled that, uh, that use-based zoning was legal. Um, and, you know, and, and that set the legal standard. It sets the legal standard to this day for use-based zoning uh, across the United States. And this... Uh, in spite of the fact, or maybe because, in part because of the fact, it was explicitly racist and racialist in, uh, in its arguments. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting and kind of embarrassing read, uh, more than embarrassing, uh, to, go, uh, to go back and take a look at it. But it set the standard for uh, development in the United States uh, according to use. And, and so it's separate. I mean, and in a certain sense, it, 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 made, it made a certain amount of sense in an industrial civilization because you don't want to, you know, um, you don't want a slaughterhouse, you know, next door uh, to a residential neighborhood. But um, it also, um, uh, what do I say, it, it uh, legitimated uh, um, single 
single family dwelling units as, as normative and provided the reason for uh, a, a reason, a legal justification for exclusionary zoning on that basis. Right, so that if you can't, if you can't afford a single family house you know, on a suburban lot, or if you want to uh, build a different kind of building uh, adjacent to a single family house, you can't do it. Um, which is, it, it, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, by the way, that's changing. I mean, I mean, it, you know, we, we, one of the one of the subtexts of this talk um, is, um, uh, you know, that we're in the middle of a housing crisis uh, in terms of of supply and in cities, in terms of of its affordability and in terms of um, just a, a, an absence of supply. And one of the things, actually, two of the things that are happening uh, across the country uh, today to uh, change that. One is uh, cities are beginning to eliminate mandatory off-street parking requirements. Um, think about that, with the implications of that. You know, I mean, it's very easy to park you know, one car. You know, if you have to park one car for every dwelling unit, uh, it's very easy to do that on a, on a single-family house lot. It's much more difficult to do that with a big apartment building. Uh, and, or even just, a, a, I showed some examples of three-story apartment buildings in, uh, one, of a type one that's very, very common in Chicago. It's a three-story U-court apartment building. So they're walk-up apartments. You get uh, on a 100-foot on a lot by 125-foot deep lot. You get a, a four-court, and, and you can get, typically in that, you can get at least 30 dwelling units, um, uh, which, you know, and generally they're one- and two-bedroom, I mean, studio one- and two-bedroom units. But it's a good, you know, a good uh, kind of housing. Um, that's illegal to build today uh, because it because the zoning ordinance today, but not then. Uh, today it requires one off-street parking space for every, every dwelling unit. You cannot get 30 cars parked, uh, build that kind of a, of a building, and park 30 cars on a lot that's 100 feet wide by 125 feet deep. But a lot of cities um, understanding that and, and wanting to address the issue of of having um, you know increasing the diversity of housing stock. Um, uh, are eliminating off-street parking requirements. So that's that's one thing. Another thing the cities are doing, uh, they're starting to eliminate uh, the requirement of, they're eliminating single-family house zoning, which um, doesn't mean you can't have single-family houses on a lot. It simply means you cannot you cannot zone it so that people cannot add uh, add other units. Property owners can, cannot add other units to, to the lot. So, so it allows, for example, it allows an ancillary dwelling now. But it, uh, under current zoning, it doesn't. Anyway, I digress again. Um, so the Euclid um, uh, versus Ambler Realty Company um, uh, set this standard that, that we're, uh, under which uh, uh, most development uh, today uh, takes place, but against which th there have arisen, uh, there's arisen pushback. Um, so uh, I showed this slide uh, yesterday about the idea, Leon Creer's uh, drawing um, of, a, of an urban neighborhood being like a pizza uh, insofar as it has... Um, uh, uh, if a neighborhood is a slice of the pizza, the, the, you know, like a slice of the pizza, an urban neighborhood has all the different uh, uses and ingredients uh, that the rest of the city does within, within the neighborhood. And contrasting that with how uh, suburbia is organized, it's as if you took all the ingredients of the pizza and separated them. And so this is a, a, an illustration of that. Right? So there, what are the components of sprawl that are separated from each other? Uh, sprawl, uh, sprawl developments are monocultures. Uh, this, is a, this is a new urbanist term, monoculture. Um, uh, uh, or maybe the new urbanist got it from somewhere else. Uh, but uh, sprawl uh, uh, you know, it consists of monocultures of housing, monocultures of shopping, monocultures of office buildings, 
Uh, civic buildings uh, as big boxes, right? Anybody want to guess what this is? I'll give you two choices. Um, a high school, um, a medium security prison. Uh, maybe there are others. Yeah, yes, that's the answer, yes. yes. Um, uh, but I, actually, off in the background, too, you can see the other, you know, the other uh, accumulations of, of single uses. Um, uh, the other thing is that it's a completely auto-oriented uh, pedestrian hostile infrastructure, uh, such as is seen here, in which there is um, one pedestrian in this picture who's uh, about to be sacrificed. Uh, I'll tell you, once, once, once you read Rene Girard, you, you can't unsee what Rene Girard sees. Um, but but this, this pedestrian is about to die for our, you know, for our sprawl environment. Um, yeah, so uh, not a sidewalk in sight. You know, this is, again, common infrastructure. By the way, just again, I digress. Um, the Champs-Élysées in Paris is this wide, is wider than this, right? And the, the carriageway is wider than this, curb to curb. Um, on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, people will sit on the sidewalks, drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, plot revolution, <laughs> adjacent, adjacent to 10 lanes, well, eight lanes of traffic and two lanes of parking, right, along the, along the street. How can they do that? How can they do that, and why not here? It's because the Champs-Élysées has sidewalks that are 75 feet wide, right, and divided by trees, and it's a very comfortable environment while the traffic moves up and down the center. And then we have this in the United States. Um, so what happens here, like you get these three monofunctional zones uh, in proximity to each other, single-family houses, apartments, shopping uh, with parking lot, uh, see, this is where I, I wish my, I wish I had the laser, doesn't work, but, so you have to, uh, suffice it to say, if you live, if you live in here in the single family houses, or even if you live in the apartments over there, so the shopping, you know, is up at the top, and, and the parking lot is sized for uh, Black Friday, right, so it's, 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 so it's generally not full most of the time. If you live in this cul-de-sac, right, at the top in a single-family house, on the other side of the retention pond is the shopping. You know, you're maybe 200 feet from the store, right? But you can't get there, right? You've got you to come out the cul-de-sac, you know, out, uh, you know, the arterial road that brings you, actually, actually it connect, the connector road comes here, and the arterial road runs up there, and then it connects the, the arterial road up there, and you come in and you park, and you, you know, you go buy your, your gallon of milk. Um, you know, after a five-minute drive from your house that you could walk to in less than five minutes. That's, that's suburbia. Um, that's, a, that's an aspect of suburbia. Um, so uh, uh, finally, in, uh, in contemporary development practice, uh, which in some ways is, you know, reacting against, uh, I mean, even in places where you have mixed use now, like these are all images from uh, proposals for, for uh, neighborhood development in poor neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, um, where uh, they're going to put a mix of uses in pedestrian proximity. But all of the development takes place uh, like on a single block in, a big, in one big building, uh, built all at once by the same developer. The stores look the same. The housing looks the same. It, it's, a, it's a very sort of cheap, cheap. I mean, it's a it's not good quality construction. It's, 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 all, it's all expensive, probably, primarily because of the land. Um, but it's, uh, uh, but there's a, again, there's a kind of, it's become a sort of developer standard. And it's unlike the manner in which city blocks were developed lot by lot 
historically uh, by multiple developers. I mean, you have to, to do a project like this, you have to be well connected. You have to be a, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, a developer with a lot of experience working with a large bank. Banks won't touch projects that are single lot or two lots or, or work with a small developer uh, in situations like this. So the, the result is a kind of, um, again, a kind of uniformity that's not exactly the same kind of, uh, of uniformity of standard practice of development in the suburbs, but it's its own uh, development in, in urban conditions that, that is still problematic uh, urbanistically. Um, so. Um, so I want to talk, so with, again, with that as background, um, as reminders, I want to, I want to talk about cities, uh, I want to talk about law, right? And, and you know, I, t I talk about cities being overlapping orders that among them, a city is always, um, it's always a, an environmental order, a legal, or, I'm sorry, an environmental order, an economic order, and a moral order, and that the aspects of the moral order, two aspects of the moral order, one is, um, the necessity of, of character virtue in the citizenry, and the other is the rule of law. And so uh, I want to think about cities as moral order uh, uh, today, uh, particularly with respect to the rule of law, uh, but not forgetting the primacy of virtues to the moral order of the city. And so, um, so I want to talk about the legitimacy of law um, and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea of eternal law and positive law. Actually, natural law is part of the eternal law. Um, uh, I want to talk about both environmental stewardship and strong economies, right? Again, an aspect of, a necessary aspect of urban life, right? The environmental implications and the economic uh, order. Um, but I want to make the point that both environmental stewardship and strong economies require the predictability ensured by good positive law. And then I want to say, too, that urban form as well is shaped in part by positive law, including Contracts, private property, exclusive entitlements, building codes having to do with materials, assemblies, assemblages of materials, construction and life safety requirements, um, master plans that lay out um, a vision, whether, you know, a sort of ideal formal vision for, uh, for, for human settlements. And again, this, this is a general observation. It's not just an observation about, about law today. Law in any, uh, in any urban settlement there are laws more complex or less that govern these kinds of things. So master plans are, are, are another aspect of that. Um, zoning law, uh, and really I want to say that there's sort of three basic uh, kinds of, of zoning law uh, historically. Uh, uh, one, uh, the most common uh, kind of zoning law uh, before the modern era was, was generative um, zoning law. I'm not going to talk about that much, but it, but it, 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 it exists. It's there. It's, it's, uh, it's, again, it's, it's generally pre-modern. Uh, Use-based zoning law, which is the regime under which we live today, and then form-based uh, models that have been developed uh, by the, uh, uh, primarily by the Congress for the New Urbanism. And I'm going to talk uh, uh, to some uh, you know, greater extent about, about form-based codes uh, as, as, a, as a form of positive zoning law. And then also tax law. For example, how and whether a community taxes buildings and or lands, right? Because every, you know, every society needs to, you know, uh, um, accumulate revenues uh, to operate for the common good. There's all kinds of different ways in which um, those kinds of taxes are collected. Um, not every society taxes, uh, taxes uh, property, buildings, um, land, um, but, but many societies do. And, and um, uh, so I just want to talk about um, sort of what are the implications for uh, urban form 
uh, when uh, um, a community taxes buildings and or taxes land. Um, so uh, briefly, the nature and role of law, some familiar characters here. Um, uh, Thomas Aquinas on law um, generally. Uh, there were some remarks on that last night. Um, um, that uh, uh, in the Summa, um, uh, Thomas writes that, that a law, uh, uh, as a general uh, understanding of law, can be understood as an ordinance of reason for the common good made by the authority responsible for the community and promulgated. And that, that's true of all of the different uh, kinds of law that, that uh, Thomas identifies, which broadly uh, categorized, uh, you know, can say there's eternal law and there's man-made positive law. Um, uh, but as part of the eternal law, there is uh, the divine law, which we find in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, um, and there's natural law. Um, and in the natural law, there are primary precepts, immediate precepts, common precepts, um, but, that, but that both natural law and divine law are, are species of uh, or examples of or participate in eternal law. And positive law is efficacious to um, the extent to which, that is to say, its, its status as law uh, is efficacious by virtue of its participation in the eternal law. And so what I want to say about zoning law and tax law, I want to talk about zoning law and tax law as species of positive law. Right, because I think a lot of architects, um, when they go into architecture, they go into architecture because they want to make beautiful things, or they want to they want to change the world, um, you know, and and that's all that's all good. Uh, but but uh, architectural education really generally encourages uh, architecture students to think that uh, their their abilities as form givers will change the world, and that that's the that's the the major contribution that they make. And obviously, I mean, architects are. Architects are absolutely concerned primarily about form, but, but uh, uh, buildings don't get built um, by good design alone, uh, and they are uh, affected greatly by it. They, they, they exist within, a, within the, the constraints of uh, a number of social constraints, including positive law. Um, so this is a little diagram of that relationship by the well, by, by the way, so that eternal law directly you know, manifest in natural law and divine law. And then uh, societies in which... Um, uh, that are more theocratic in their uh, organization uh, may refer uh, or may make positive law with reference to, design, to divine law, but there's a more direct relationship, uh, you know, regardless of the, the political circumstances, um, where um, uh, just positive law uh, is, uh, uh, participates in, in the natural law, which can, again, which is that, that aspect of the eternal law that can be understood by reason uh, and does not require uh, special revelation. Um, so uh, I talked last time, or Monday, I guess, uh, about certain principles of Catholic social teaching. And I, and I just I want to reiterate the ones that I think are really germane to thinking about law with respect to the built environment. Um, one has to do with the dignity of the human person. Um, uh, the idea of a human person is both a social animal and a moral agent, uh, requiring both virtue and grace to turn, away, uh, to turn toward good and away from evil. Uh, the idea of communal solidarity, uh, the common good as the purpose of civil government, uh, public policy with a bias for the needs of the involuntarily poor, and the human stewardship of creation in particular. Um, so I'm going to talk at greater length about the idea of, of transect um, theory. But transect theory uh, is something that has been uh, invented. Uh, well, some discussion about whether the idea of of a, of a rural to urban transect is a discovery or an invention. And actually, I want to say that it's, I want to say that it's both, right? Uh, certainly, the, art, the articulation of it is a, 
is an invention, but but the observation of it uh, is is you know constitutes a kind of a kind of discovery. And I'll I'll, I'll talk uh, more about that. Um, but uh, uh, I want to I want to talk about uh, a different kind of zoning because this is one of the things I, I would say that of, of all the things that the new urbanists do. In some ways, it's not the most glamorous, but it may be the most consequential, uh, which is that they have uh, created a theory for an alternative to use-based zoning. Uh, and they do this to advance the principles uh, that, um, that are found in the Charter for the New Urbanism, which I asked you to read, which is just, you know, this three-page document that sort of describes what, it, what their assumptions are and what their, what their goals are. Um, and, and some of which are better articulated, I would say, um, than others. But still, I think basically, uh, it's a it's a pretty sound uh, document. But uh, uh, I think that uh, I mean one of the things that they quickly realized is that they couldn't make the kind of environments that they wanted to under the existing legal regime. And so one of the consequences of that over a period of about 20 years is there's been a lot of discussion and, and theorization about about you know, what, kind of, what kind of zoning law would make it possible to make the kinds of traditional environments that, that new urbanists are interested in. Um, and and, and what, what, came, what they came up with was transect theory that leading as a basis for form-based codes rather than use-based codes. Um, this leads to things like you know, documents, legal documents that, um, that, that uh, you know, uh, have been adopted actually in, in many cities, um, including uh, a, a kind of a, a hierarchical sequence uh, that you know, starts with what's called a regulating plan that uh, that uh, leads to pages of uh, form-based codes. Uh, that, I'm sorry, of, of building uh, code pages uh, that are uh, identified by type. They also, they, they, uh, of necessity, they have to code street types. Uh, you, it's easy to get lost in the minutia here, and so I'm going to try not to. Um, but, but these are examples of form-based code pages. Um, they you know, promote, um, uh, again, uh, this is something that has emerged recently, right? Because one of the things, actually, I, I think one could argue that one of the mistakes, uh, and it's an understandable mistake that the new urbanists made early on, is that they threw their lot in with the building construction industry, with, with uh, big house developers. Uh, now, the iconic seaside, uh, seaside, the iconic new urbanist project is Seaside, Florida, uh, which is, is really an extraordinary place if you've never been there. It has a bad reputation because they used it for, uh, you know, as the, as the set for the movie Truman. But, I mean, a lot of people make movies in Rome, you know, and that, that's hardly a, a condemnation of Rome. Um, but many other reasons maybe why, you, but actually Rome's, Rome's fantastic. But the, um, uh, the point is that Seaside, if you've never been there, it's actually worth a visit because it's it's really really good place. It was developed over a period of about 30 years. There were some odd circumstances. It was owned by one developer. He inherited the land. He wasn't under economic pressure to develop it, and he could take his time. And he got a lot of you know a, multi, a, a whole lot of architects participated in it, and so it really has this nice feel of something that that was uh, developed slowly and intentionally and at a at a very high quality. Although. The, the charm of the small buildings on the east side as they develop from east to west have, has, has given way to the mansions, you know, the, the urban mansions that exist on, on the west side. So um, it's, not, uh, it's, it, it's not that there's not a worm in the garden, right, in, uh, at Seaside, but uh, still, it's, it's quite an achievement. Um, nevertheless, most of their projects are done for for-profit developers, uh, and there are certain kinds of pressures on for-profit developers uh, that, that come into play. And so... There were there have just been historic difficulties of you know figuring out how do you how do you integrate uh, uses into uh, how do you make mixed use and how do you get developers 
who do housing to do mixed-use environments. And that, that's been a, a challenge, and, and they've actually been fairly successful at it. But again, I think the, the main thing is that uh, it seems to create a, a, an operative assumption that, um, which is a modernist assumption, and, a moder and, and something to remember is that all new urbanists were educated as, um, as modernists um, and, and are recovering modernists. But um, the, the, um, it's one of the modernist assumptions uh, that, that the right building environment will make people good, will make people happy. And, and new urbanists, have, they, they don't challenge that modernist assumption enough. Right, so that there's a kind of there's a there's a kind of uh, uh, metaphysical shallowness, uh, I would say, to the to to uh, new urbanist theory uh, and practice, um, well-meaning uh, as it is. Anyway, um, the uh, yeah, so the they. Uh, they were working with the housing industry, so so they 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 had to play catch up with the idea of uh, of uh, communities making places as opposed to the idea of places making communities. Although again, it's a it's a reciprocity. Anyway, so one of the things though that they did uh, is that early on, until 1908, until the crash of the market, they would work with big developers and they would do greenfield developments and you know as, as an alternative to suburban developments and, and that's an improvement but. Uh, not necessarily an ideal, but what happened with the crash is that everybody, it just, that all just ground to a halt, right? So all the new urbanist practitioners, particularly the young ones, um, they had to figure out what they were going to do, and what they started doing was um, small-scale development. And so there's actually a, a, a part, a, a movement within new urbanism called the Incremental Development Alliance uh, that really encourages people to develop locally a little below the radar, lot by lot, uh, it, you know, in this kind of, you know, these kinds of patterns. Um, where they're not doing big single block, you know, single block developments, but they're doing um, lot by lot. So, um, so, it, so, so in the best pre-1950 cities, you know, blocks are subdivided into lots, um, and then they're built up by multiple developers uh, that, you know, that give you mixed-use buildings here uh, on, on commercial streets, that give you a variety of housing types on residential streets. Um, so I, I want to talk about the, the new, the Congress of New Urbanism then, and um, uh, the, and their emergence, right? Uh, the, the CNU promotes walkable neighborhoods containing a range of housing and a mix of uses, which is referred to generally as neo-traditional or traditional urbanism. Um, it, it, it arose uh, out of the post-World War II experience of urban design and land use uh, that was organized primarily around the automobile. Um, it, its concerns have to do, uh, or I should say that their, their health and safety and welfare uh, concerns that that led to uh, the rise of the of the post-war suburb uh, it was a reaction to the overcrowding of the industrial city. But it was also it was also government policy. I mean, I, I don't think you can underestimate how much the uh, the idea of the decentralization of cities was affected by what Americans did to the centralized cities of Europe um, uh, at the end of the Second World War. Um, and it was characterized by this separation of uses that that was uh, legitimated by uh, by the, the Euclid case. Um, so there were, you know, reactions to uh, the growth of the post-war suburb, uh, critical reactions uh, from the 60s to the 80s by people like Lewis Mumford, Jane Jacobs, um, Leon Creer, Christopher Alexander, Andres Duane, Elizabeth Plater Zybert. And, um, and it was a criticism uh, and reaction against modern urban design and modern uh, contemporary land use. Uh, in 1991, there was a kind of proto-CNU charter that was uh, drafted by 
uh, some people who later became uh, founders of the, of the co-founders of the new urbanism called the Iwani Principles um, uh, from uh, the Iwani Hotel in, in Yosemite. And in 1993, the Congress of the New Urbanism was founded, uh, and the six founders are Andres Duane, Elizabeth Plater's Ivory, husband, wife team, Stephanos Palazoides, and Elizabeth Mole, husband and wife team. Stephanos Palazoides is the new dean, uh, by the way, at, at Notre Dame. Uh, Peter Calthorpe and, uh, and Daniel Solomon. Um, so I want to talk about, real quickly, the transect and transect-based zoning. I really want to do it quickly because I want to talk about Henry George. I never seem to get to Henry George. So, um, so the idea of a transect, what is a transect? A transect, um, it's actually an older idea. It comes from the discipline of, of you know, environmental studies and ecology. It's a diagram describing a range, uh, originally a range of natural habitats. But the, the insight of the Congress for the New Urbanism was to take the idea of a transect that describes a natural uh, habitat and extend it to man-made habitats. And so there are natural transects, and there are rural to urban transects. And so this, is, this would be an example of a, of a natural transect um, that occurs you know, at, a, at, a, at a lakeside or beachside dune, uh, the, the, you know, the different uh, ways that you can slice it and, and, and differentiate between the, the features of, of, the, of the environment. And, and then this is a rural to urban transect. Um, in, in two dimensions uh, in the diagram at the top, which in some ways is the most common, but there's a whole variety of three-dimensional uh, uh, depictions of the transect that, that can be shown, and this is an example uh, on the right is, is an example of, the one, of, them, of one of those. So um, the rural to urban transect is a diagram of human habitat, um, and, and it's, uh, I should say, well, it's a diagram of human habitat describing the relationship of the rural environment to traditional urban environments. It's a great simplification of the rural environment. It simplifies, it is, it simplifies uh, uh, the landscape into two zones, right? The zone that is not tended by human beings and the zone that is tended by human beings, you know, uh, because its real focus is on, is on the urban uh, environment. But it's useful because it recognizes that that the transect that you know that that the, that the the human habitation is part of is part of the natural world and is connected to the natural world. Um, anyway, it the the urban transect uh, refers to that range of human habitats that support human flourishing within which human settlements are part of a sustainable ecosystem. These habitats, um, diagra diagrammatically depicted as transect zones, range from less dense to more dense. But, and this is critical, each urban transect zone denotes a walkable and mixed-use human environment uh, defined by an approximately five-minute walk and ideally for persons of varying ages and economic classes. The latter doesn't always turn out that way, um, but, um, but that's, that's uh, aspirational uh, anyway. Um, now, uh, let's see, there was something I wanted to say about the... About uh, no, let me just let me let me just run through the zones because the idea isn't that isn't that these transect zones each one is a separate kind of settlement. Uh, the idea is that every urban settlement has at least a couple, two or three of these zones within it, so that within any human settlement there's a range of of densities and building types that are that are permitted, and this becomes uh, uh, because this becomes a basis of, of zoning. You identify a particular uh, uh, transect zone. Uh, that's, that presumes, by the way, a mix of uses, right? So, so that the buildings that are built are recognizable as a certain kind of type, like you can recognize a residential type. You know, and the example I always like to give is the big, the big, you know, any pre-1945 small town. There's a corner with a great big house on it that the lawyer or the local doctor lived in, and uh, and you know raised you know raised eight children, and and uh, and then over the you know over uh, over the decades. Um, 
it, it might become um, you know, a, uh, an attorney's office or it might become a bed and breakfast or it might become a Alcoholics Anonymous you know, um, um, meeting house or something like that. But the point is, is that, is that um, it, the, the presumption of the zoning and the culture in the building was that, that um, buildings will experience changes in their use over time, right? Which is, again, contrary to the idea of use-based zoning. The idea of use-based zoning is there's one and only one use Right, that can that can take place in this building, and so um, anyway, a lot of common sense in, in that. Element. So, so the way to think about the way to think about the new urbanist rural to urban transect is to think of it as a. I want to say as a as a reality loaf of bread uh, or as a reality sausage, uh, in which you're you know slicing it into as many different pieces as you need in order for it to to do what you what you want it to do. Um, the, the one thing I will say is that it's not uh, the, is that. And they don't. They haven't thought real carefully about this. I think they have thought carefully because it doesn't show up. But they haven't articulated. But, but the um, the new urbanist rural to urban transact does not include every type of human settlement. It includes the rural transect zones, and it includes urban human settlements. So it doesn't include suburbia. It doesn't include post-war suburbia. So it's a it's a normative, it's a normative idea, even though they officially the new urbanism. Uh, uh, shies away from normative ideas, except for those that are expressed in the uh, in the um, in the charter for the new urbanism, which is we'll come back to that. Um, anyway, so you slice it in as many different uh, pieces as you as you need. Um, so uh, I'm just going to go real quickly, very quickly through the zone. So the, the first one, I, I particularly want to talk about the, the differentiation between natural and rural T zones. So again, if you if you're ever around new urbanists, some new urbanist charrette or something like that, and they start talking. If you ever go to architecture school and study this stuff, and there aren't that many architecture schools where you can go to and study this stuff, people will start, they'll, they'll, they'll just start speaking in shorthand. Oh, T1 this, oh, T4 that, oh, T5 that. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's inside baseball and it's jargon. If I lapse into that, don't think I'm an ass. Um, but I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll try not to do that. Anyway, so the, the, the T1 zone is, is the natural zone. So this, so this is, it's basically the idea is nature, uh, Untended by human beings. Now, there's very little of that actually that exists in the world now, but but that's that's the ideal. Is that nature untended by by human beings? And we show pictures like this that show these you know wonderful, beautiful bucolic settings. But I think that this is more the kind of the kind of uh, image that we want to show. That there's there's the beauty, and then there's the the reality that when human beings are nature are are in a T1 zone, we're not superintending. We're potential food, all right. And that's, I think it's a more accurate understanding of, of, of nature and of human nature. Um, so uh, rural, T2, is, is the area of, of uh, the landscape that is tended by human beings. Um, so this can be agriculture, it can be urban parks, it can be you know, golf courses in Scotland adjacent to St. Andrews, you know, that, that, all that kind of stuff. So um, T3 is the least dense um, zone. It's generally, it's not dense enough to stand alone. Uh, uh, you know, as a town, because it just doesn't have the population density to support the mix of uses that a that a walkable mixed use settlement has. But it can be a, a part of that kind of town. Um, so, you know, uh, general T four is what is a little higher density. It's what uh, it's 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 more distinctly urban. It's on streets. It makes space. T three zones are sort of ambiguous in terms of their spatial uh, the spatial character of their streets and whether they're they can even be characterized as streets. But T four definitely fronts streets. As a spatial environment, um, and and what's normative obviously will vary from place to place. It'll be higher density, lower density. So, um, uh, bottom right is is low density. Sort of left is medium density, and and actually left and upper left are sort of medium density. Um, 
And then T5, uh, generally in T3 and T4, the building types are generally residential, right? They could be used for other things, but as a type, they're residential. In T5, the, the normative building type is mixed use. Um, and so the, generally, it's the case that in a, in a, in, in, when you zone something T5 as an urban center, the presumption is there's retail mm -hmm. at the grade and other activities um, above it, housing or shops or something. So these are instances of this. And, and this is T6, uh, the urban core, which is the highest density, and which is, um, it's really, it's, again, it's a mixed-use building type. In that sense, it's just like T5. Um, except that the, the way that I ask students, and again, this is, this is a, maybe this is idiosyncratic, but um, it, the difference between T5 and T6 is that T5 is made up of walk-up buildings. So generally three stories, maybe four stories maximum. And T6 are elevator buildings. Uh, now, in the, pre, in the 19th century when they were building Paris as, as a city of six and seven story buildings, uh, those were all walk-ups, right? So, uh, which is why it was, why the, the, the attic was occupied by poor artists, whereas today the upper floors are occupied by the wealthy because they've, they've located the elevators in the buildings. But, um, but, but that's also significant. The six stories is significant because that's about the upper limit of, of uh, uh, efficient masonry bearing wall building, um, which is the most durable form of building. So that if you're going higher than six or seven stories today, you are building uh, with uh, frame construction, either steel frame construction or concrete frame uh, construction. And that has implications for building durability. It also has implications for height. It has environmental uh, implications. But uh, so, there, so there are those who look at, there are new urbanists who look at, uh, you know, as, at T5 as being two to three-story buildings and T6 as two to six-story buildings or three to six-story buildings. And then those who, who regard T6 as a proper place for high-rises. Um, of varying varying kinds, um, so this would be this would be this is this would be uh, urban core London, um, Regent Street, um, and uh, on the lower left would be the Champs Elysees urban core, uh, Paris, and on the right is um, um, uh, Fifth Avenue uh, is Park East, um, Fifth Avenue uh, in Manhattan. Obviously, taller buildings uh, in Manhattan um, that are regarded as T six now. Um, there is this issue of uh, normative circumstances uh, in, in the new urbanism. And I, I, so I wrote, uh, and this is where I want to talk about natural law and its relationship to the transect-based uh, transect coding as positive law. And I apologize for reading this. I had to cobble this out of, out of a, an essay that I wrote um, that I didn't have the original for. But, but um, I, I just I, I wanted to talk about it. So this is, a, this is an article I wrote. Uh, trying to persuade new urbanists that um, that our thinking would be better if it were grounded uh, in natural law, as it as it it clearly is, but it's not acknowledged because they view natural law as being um, theocratic, right? As being you know pro-life. You know, so what's with that? Um, but but I was trying to make the argument for um, uh, the the grounded in reason about about why um, uh, new urbanists should think about. Uh, our enterprise as, as being grounded in natural law. Um, anyway, so I identified you know, some uh, kind of common precepts, the foundational ones from Aquinas, good should be pursued and evil avoided, uh, you know, from which you derive various things that we know either through reason or we know through the commandments. Um, you know, uh, render impartially what's due to every person, be just, don't take innocent human life, honor marriage, don't commit adultery, care for children and the elderly, be trustworthy, don't steal, treat others as, yourself would, as you yourself would wish to be treated. 
And then I identified, I said, you know, without mosaic pretensions um, that, uh, of 10, that I had a 10th one that I identified, and, but pointed out, because this is the foundation for, for my thinking about uh, a, a hypothetical um, uh, natural law uh, precept about human settlements, um, which is that the 10th precept is an example of a common precept of the natural law. It's more detailed uh, than an immediate precept of the, national, of the natural law and more remote from the primary precepts. Um, uh, and because there may be exceptions to them and because they may not be so widely known as the primary and immediate precepts. The 10th precept concerning the principle of subsidiarity uh, is implicit in much of the Aristotelian Thomas natural law tradition, but was not really recognized and articulated as a natural law principle until the first third of the 20th century in response to the rise of the totalitarian state, right? So the, so the 10th precept is observe and obey the law of subsidiarity, namely, that in the words of Pius XI's 1931 encyclical, uh, I don't know, can you pronounce the Latin? Uh, it's wrong, quote, to assign to a greater and higher association what lesser and subordinate associations can do. That is, larger institutions should not attempt to do what smaller ones do as well or better, right? That was articulated by the Catholic Church as a natural law principle, discovered, not ever identified and promulgated as such because prior to the rise of totalitarianism in the beginning of the 20th century, subsidiarity could be taken for granted, right? It was, it was part of the organization of human society. So analogously to that, uh, what I want to say is that, um, uh, you know, insofar as the urban transect can be regarded not simply as a tool but also as a discovery, the historic specificity of its discovery and articulation is similar to the historic specificity of the discovery and articulation of the principle of subsidiarity, inasmuch as prior to the rise of post-war sprawl, the urban transect was likewise not in need of articulation. Um, so here's an 11th natural law precept, a new one, describing something real but heretofore understood only implicitly. It is best thought of as a common natural law precept because it's not inferred, yada, yada, yada. Um, so, uh, but the, 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 the hypothetical precept is human beings should make, and I says make, should make walkable mixed-use settlements. Right? And I say make because I don't want to say that you, that you can't be moral and live in suburbia. I'm not saying that at all. I, I think it's more difficult in some respects. But in the same way, you're, you're not moral simply by, live, by virtue of living in a city. Right? Um, and, but but the, the point being that it's not possible for many people today, it's not possible for them to live in a walkable mixed-use environment. Right? And so the, the principle, I mean, you can't be held morally accountable for what it's not possible for you to do. But the precept should be, that human beings should make walkable uh, mixed-use uh, mixed-use walkable settlements. If that's true, let's hypothesize that it is. It suggests that there's an obligation that we have to those of us who recognize would recognize it as a natural law principle to think of positive law instantiations of it. Right? What kinds of positive laws um, you know might be might be created um, that would um, participate in this principle? So uh, I, I want to suggest that the the rural to urban transect. Uh, uh, is one such manifestation of positive law um, that, that make it possible to make walkable mixed-use human settlements uh, uh, in contrast to what present-day uh, single-use zoning mandates. Present-day single-use zoning mandates the creation of sprawl. Um, so now, so maybe, yeah, maybe I can get to Henry George because he just showed up. Um, so the other thing I want to talk about uh, as, a, as a kind of uh, 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 positive law uh, practice uh, that, that would better uh, represent natural law uh, with respect to human settlement 
um, is, uh, is land value taxation. And um, uh, how many of you have heard of Henry George? Okay, so I, I guess that's good. I, I just, the, the um, yeah. Henry George is like Rene, for me, he's like Rene Girard. You know, once you understand the argument, it, you can't not see it. Um, anyway, so the, the idea of, of land value taxation and the post-liberal economy is that socializing land, the, the idea is, is the idea of socializing land and incentivizing development, right? In other words, incentivizing uh, the free, free markets, right, uh, as common good practical politics. That's, that's the idea. So um, Henry George is a 19th century American um, uh, untutored, uh, uh, had a very good elementary school education and um, learned a lot on the one and a half times that he um, went around the world and wound up in San Francisco working as a printer. Uh, anyway, I won't, I won't tell his life story, but uh, read voraciously. Uh, his thinking is grounded really in the um, uh, original um, uh, liberal economists, uh, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, not neoliberal, but the uh, liberal economists, uh, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, um, and, uh, and also you know, has implications because it was taking place in the time of the rise of, of Marxist um, theory as well. Um, and is also of significance um, with respect to uh, the, uh, the influence of his work and how it was superseded by um, uh, neoliberal economists um, really associated, uh, economic theory associated with, with John Maynard Keynes and, and Friedrich von Hayek, uh, who of course were opposed to each other, but nevertheless both within this um, um, sort of understanding of neoliberal uh, economics. Um, how many of you have ever heard of, there's a great video, I saw, someone here is from, from George Mason University, their economics department, which has a libertarian bent. Uh, they, uh, they produced a, a video, a rap video, about 10 or 12 years ago called Fear the Boom and Bust. Have any of you ever seen it? You should Google it. It's fantastic. Uh, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a rap, it, it's a rap exchange between, between actors uh, playing John Maynard Keynes and, and Friedrich von Hayek, and it's, it's really, it's terrific. Um, so, yeah, fear the boom and bust. But it's actually, it's germane, right? Because what Henry George is writing about, actually, the, the main work that he wrote uh, was, was a book called Progress and Poverty, uh, which the significance of which is, and I, there's a quote, actually, that'll, that'll indicate the significance, is that he, was, he observed uh, the, the tremendous growth of wealth in late 19th century America and the corresponding growth in abject poverty. Uh, and he was trying to figure out, you know, what was the, what was the cause of that, and he and came up with an interesting theory. Um, about about why that why that was the case. Um, uh, so, uh, it, a, a, a really simplistic diagram that that shows the difference between uh, a sort of a capitalist attitude toward taxation, a socialist attitude toward that, toward taxation, a communist attitude toward taxation, and a Georgist attitude toward taxation. Which is that capitalism will tax rent, wages, and interest. Uh, just a little, right, to, to encourage, uh, in, to incentivize development. Socialism wants to tax more for common good um, practices. Uh, communism wants to take most, if not all, uh, of, of the wealth and, uh, and, and employ it ostensibly for common good practices. And Henry George wants to tax all of the rental value that accrues to land and not tax anything on wages and interest. And his argument is that the, the rental value of land, taxing the rental value of land, it has, 
it, it has so many positive aspects. And, um, and actually, he summarizes some of this. You know, he summarizes this in his, his, his open letter to, to, uh, to uh, Leo XIII, which I, I think is wonderful. You know, I mean, there's the old cliche about being more Catholic than the Pope. But I, th I really think that, you know, <laughs> I, I, I would like to argue with some good Catholic theologians whether, the, you know, have read this if, if, if they think that's the case. It appears to me to be the case because he's not, he's not disagreeing with Leo uh, Leo's intentions in uh, Rerum Novarum, but he's, he's vehemently disagreeing with Leo's uh, assumption of a Lockean theory of land and land ownership. And Henry George's argument basically is that land cannot be, should not be owned by human beings because human beings didn't create it, right? That nothing that is provided to human beings by nature can be owned by nature. You can have, in the case of land, and, and this is his term, right? Land, land doesn't just mean dirt. Land means everything uh, in nature provided to human beings uh, for our use and employment. It's what we make things out of. Uh, and the things that we make from our labor, we're entitled uh, to the, the entire value of that in terms of its exchange. We're entitled to um, any uh, uh, proceeds that come from employing uh, capital to uh, make more material wealth, but we are not entitled to own the natural bounty, right, that we were given that we didn't create. So it's, so it, it's, it's very sympathetic. I mean, it's, it's the, the church, I, I, mean, I was looking this, this past spring at, at uh, and of course, Rerum Novarum is this kind of foundational document for Catholic social teaching. And, and you know, John Paul wrote a, you know, a, a, an anniversary, um, a, a centennial uh, encyclical about it, you know, really great. Robert Barron kind of summarized it all, uh, again, uh, extremely well about the very nuanced position that the Catholic Church takes toward the market economy and wealth for the common good and concern for the poor and, and all of that. But they all adopt a Lockean assumption about land being something that human beings can actually own by virtue of our using it, that by using it, it becomes part of us. And Henry George says, no, you can't, you can't go that far. Um, that that um, you can't, what, what, what you can do, he says, um, is you can hold exclusive title to something in nature. But because the, that exclusive title is a title to something that is a common good, you have to pay a fee to the commons in order to use it, right? And you cannot profit from an increase in its value, right? And so um, if any of you, well, anyway, let me, let me so, so, this is, so this is the Georgist idea, right, is that you, you tax... And George, Henry George wanted to tax 95% of the, of the rental value of, of natural materials. But I mean, there's, there's arguments about, about you know, how much uh, you should tax. You should tax 10% or 50%. I mean, that, that could be a political thing. But the principle is, is that, is that you, 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 human beings don't deserve to profit from that which we did not create. Um, so. Now, so here's this little passage from Progress and Property. He says, take now some hard-headed businessman who has no theories but knows how to make money. Say to him, here's a little village. In 10 years, it will be a great city. The railroad will have taken the place of the stagecoach, the electric light of the candle, and it will abound with all the machinery and improvements that so enormously multiply the effective power of labor. Will, in 10 years, interest be any higher? The wages of the common laborer? He will tell you no. What then will be higher? Rent, the value of land. Go get yourself a piece of ground and hold possession. And if under such circumstances you take his advice, you need do nothing more. You can sit down and smoke your pipe. You can lie around like the aristocracy of Europe or South America. You can go up in a balloon or down in a hole in the ground. But without doing one stroke of work, without adding one iota of wealth to the community, in 10 years you'll be rich. In the new city, you may have a luxurious mansion. 
but among its public buildings will be an almshouse. So let me define some key terms here. And I'm, I have until noon. I mean, I don't have until noon because we want to do quick Q&A, but I've got a couple more minutes. Okay. So I want to define some key terms here. That, that wealth, right? And again, this is all, th these are all definitions that are, you know, very much in keeping with the Adam Smith. This, this, is, this is not, this is not, um, I'm say it's, it's, it's not consonant with modern economics. It is entirely consonant with the practice of what until uh, neoliberal economics in the 20th century was known as political economy. So it's entirely consonant with Adam Smith and with David Ricardo and, and, and Aristotle and Aquinas. But, uh, but, but uh, uh, it's not the way neoliberal economists think about this. I have a couple of really, uh, they're not really good friends, they're, they're a couple of friends in the economics department who are very devout Catholics, very strong in Catholic social teaching, um, and and they just they can't just Henry George, Adam Smith. They're I mean they're not something that economists read today, um, and and they don't quite know what to do with them except that except to not do anything. Um, so anyway, so wealth, uh, uh, all material things that are produced by labor for the satisfaction of human desires and having exchange value, land is the entire material universe exclusive of people and what people produce. Labor is all human exertion in the production of wealth. Capital is wealth used to produce more wealth or wealth in the course of exchange. Imagine, all, imagine in thinking about all, all this, that, that take money out of the equation, right? I mean, you just think about wealth and all the material. Money is, a, money is an abstraction, right, through which we participate in these things. So, so the wealth is the actual... The, you know, the, the, the physical product of, of labor, likewise the capital. So um, capital wealth used to produce more wealth or wealth in the course of exchange. Rent, and this is, this is the key thing. Rent is that part of wealth which is the return for the use of land, right? For the use of uncreated, uh, for the use of, of, of um, un, un, the use of nature that human beings did not create, right? That's... Um, uh, when you're when you're uh, uh, renting something that you didn't create uh, or was not created by human beings, um, that's that's where uh, that's where that's where Henry George draws the line. But that's what wealth is, right? So uh, that's what rent is. So rent is how, how the way he defines it is is that part of wealth which is the return for the use of of unimproved land. Um, wages are that part of wealth which is the return to labor. Interest is that part of wealth which is the return for the use of capital. And distribution is the division of wealth among the factors that produce it. Um, so basic little diagram of how, how a land value tax differs from property tax. Generally, a property tax is assessed on the value of land and the value of buildings. And the land value tax would tax the land alone, the rental value of the land alone. Um, so that what you see on the left are uh, two vacant lots uh, where they're, uh, this is under property tax, where uh, the, the objective is to, the total tax revenue on the block with four lots is $10,000 at 1% of the tax rate uh, as a hypothetical. Um, and so the total assessed value of the block is there's $400,000 worth of land and $600,000 worth of buildings. And the land, uh, the, the people on the vacant land pay $1,000 each and the people on the the occupied land pay $4,000 uh, each, which is a combination of their land, the value of their land and the value of their house. Under a land value tax uh, situation, 
the, uh, both the vacant lot and the occupied lot would pay the same. So they would pay $2,500. And, and you can extend the principle to the idea of you know, one of these buildings on the right is the Empire State Building, and the other is the vacant, the vacant land. Uh, and they will pay the same in taxes um, for the land. Um, now, you, this is one reason why you want to have zoning codes. You may not want the Empire State Building next to your single-family house or whatever, but, mm -hmm. but that's, that's a zoning issue. But the, the tax issue is that, is that you pay only for the, the unimproved value of the land. Um, so there's some basic um, questions, um, or, or I say the, the, the virtues of, a land, of land value taxation uh, is, is as a source of public revenue, it's, it, is, it creates positive incentives for environmental preservation, right? Because uh, there's no profit. The more land you use, the more tax you're going to pay on it. Um, there may be differentiations between, there would be differentiations between rural land and urban land, but that's the differentiation that exists between um, land that is valued by the market and that was created by the community. Um, and so there, there would be differentiation, like farmers, any intelligent uh, positive law regime of, of uh, land value taxation would try to create incentives for farmers to farm, right, and, uh, and, and make them pay heavier taxes if, if, they, if, if the land starts to be developed. So um, source of public revenue for environmental preservation for efficiency of collection and minimal negative externalities. Uh, it's actually... Uh, uh, in, in principle, it's not hard to, to figure out what the value, the, the, um, the unapproved value of the land uh, would be. It's already taxed. Uh, you can get it by seeing how much a vacant lot in the vicinity um, goes for, um, et cetera. And there's the question of how much rent should the community collect. All of these are sort of practical questions that can be, can be dealt with. But the, the minimal negative externalities, I mean, what, what happens as a consequence of, of taxing land uh, is that, or by taxing property, you penalize people for improving their property, because if they build something more on their property, if they make an improvement on their house, their taxes go up. Um, but if you, at the, at the same time, if you are minimizing the tax on the land, then someone with a vacant lot has an incentive to just sit on it, to park cars on it, to do something, to do anything other than develop it. And he's not, he or she's not penalized for doing that. And so what the land value tax does is it rewards people who develop their land because they don't pay any extra taxes on the buildings that they make. So it's an incentive to build, and it's an incentive to build well. And they don't, uh, and, it's a, and it's a disincentive to hold on to land for speculation, because you can't profit by speculation. Uh, and in fact, you'll be taxed for not, you're going to be taxed anyway. So uh, you either, you have an incentive to either develop your land or to sell it to someone who will. Um, so these are, these are positive externalities. The negative externalities are the condition that we have now. So um, again, uh, just again, in the basic definition, you know, labor yields wages, capital yields interest, land yields rent, um, produce wealth equals rent plus wages plus interest, or produce minus rent equals wages plus interest. So, um, what uh, you know in the, in the text is no matter the increase in productive power, if the increase of rent keeps pace with it, neither wages nor interest um, can increase. Now, this is the issue. There's a lot of places where uh, there's a housing shortage, and the, the cry goes up that what we need is just greater supply, and that'll solve the housing shortage. If Henry George is correct, and from just, again, just sort of casual observations of what actually happens in those circumstances, um, is that you, if, there's a, if there's a housing shortage and you supply, you know, if you supply to meet the demand, it doesn't mean that that supply is going to be affordable, because the, the, the price of the real estate 
the, the price of the land increases at a pace greater than the, the satisfaction of the, you know, of uh, the, the meeting the supply or meeting the demand, right, for, for, more, for more housing. So the, the pace, the, 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 the cost of housing continues to rise even as you continue to provide um, the, you know, to meet the, the demands. So, so he writes, that's where the value of land is low. There may be a small production of wealth and yet a high rate of wages and interest. And where the, where the value of land is high, there may be a very large production of wealth and yet a low rate of wages and interest. Where productive power increases, wages and interest will be affected not by the increase, but by the manner in which rent is affected. If the value of land increases proportionately, all the increased production will be swallowed up by rent and wages and interest will remain as before. Only when the value of land fails to increase as rapidly as productive power can wages and interest increase with the increase of productive power. So um, another definition, unimproved land value is the dollar amount worth of a parcel of land without any buildings or improvements on it. It's typically calculated based on its location and upon comparable vacant land sales. Two tenets of the theory is that virtually, the first is that virtually all revenues required to fund local government programs and services can and should be raised by a tax on land. And the second is that this tax should replace most, if not all, the, all other taxes. Now, this is proven historically. This has been implemented um, in some places, but in the United States, it's and it's actually been implemented. Uh, there were efforts in the United States to to implement it, where it was quasi successful. But it's um, it has a checkered history for reasons that we can talk about. Um, but the assumption, the, again, uh, the, the basic assumptions of the theory is that land, being a resource that no human being has created, is properly understood as common wealth. Right, so that no one can own it. Generally, when you tax something, you get less of it. Right, so if you tax wages, if you tax, um, you know, uh, interest earnings um, or dividends, um, you create incentives to to diminish the quantity of, um, uh, of 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 both labor and capital. But a tax on land cannot diminish the quantity of land. <coughs> right, so it doesn't because people people need land in order to do what we do as human beings, uh, as, as makers. Um, the thing about taxes, you know, you, uh, when you tax something, you get less of it. I mean, the, every economist uh, understands this and agrees with it. And it's just, it's, it's, uh, it, it's kind of obvious if you think about it, but it's also, it's, it's, it's uh, it, let's see, it's a hidden truth, right, when certain taxes go up, but it's, a, it's an explicit truth when you do things like sin taxes, right? I mean, we tax tobacco, right? We tax we tax alcohol because we want to decrease the quantity of uh, consumption of tobacco and alcohol. Myself, I'd like to tax um, inoperable windows and um, <laughs> concrete frame construction <laughs> and uh, university middle managers. <laughs> um, so final question. Uh, under a land value tax, or, uh, five big questions, four big questions. How might a land value tax be implemented? How much revenue might it raise? What would be the difference grossly between rural and urban tax rates? Who wins and who loses? I cannot answer those questions. I have done, in my studios, we have done a, a little revenue neutral land value tax proposal for Kane County, Illinois, uh, really sort of organized along principles of the transect, sort of figuring out how you know, different um, densities uh, would be taxed in order to meet, uh, meet the existing tax revenues in Kane County uh, via a, simply a tax on the land uh, and eliminating like sales taxes and uh, other, you know, other taxes. It's a problem because um, it's, it's interesting um, thinking about uh, zoning and, and Euclidean zoning is that under the law in most states, 
every municipality can set its own zoning regulations, but only in Pennsylvania uh, do local communities have the ability to set their own property tax regulations. Right? So in order to do this at a widespread level, uh, uh, which has been done, again, earlier, early in the, late in the 19th century, early in the 20th century, and Henry George was a celebrity in his time. Progress of Poverty sold more copies of any book in the second half of the 19th century, uh, more than any book but the Bible. Uh, I mean, he was a, he was a rock star, and he's totally forgotten uh, today. 